Good morning. It is great to see you all here as we are continuing forward as a church through the book of Romans and in this series, particularly called War Torn. We're kind of discussing the battles of life, kind of the struggles and the war of our lives versus uh, against God. And uh, while well, a lot of people have said, hey, I don't really feel like I'm, I'm warring against God. I don't feel like I'm fighting against God. But we, when we start to examine, we start to kind of open it up, we realize how we think about God is really in battle concepts in the sense of like, God, why are you giving this to me? Why is this happening to me? Why is this going on in my life? God, um, why do you feel so far away? All these kind of conversations that we can explore in the reality of a, of a life at, in, at battle with God. And we've been talking instead about surrender, coming to the place where we say, you know what, I'm exhausted with this war stuff. I'm done with this battle stuff. I'm ready to surrender. I'm ready to just give up. I'm ready to just throw my, throw my arms and receive God's grace of forgiveness that he has brought us through Jesus Christ. And so just thinking about this, I began to dive into the, the passage, and I ran into kind of a conversation that kind of ran into families and history and this kind of stuff. And it was interesting because it led me to think about the war of the Civil War, because I'd heard stories about how um, it had torn our, our country apart and even down to the families. And there is one particular um, group, uh, one particular set of brothers, um, namely a guy named Alexander J- and James Campbell. Now, Imagine with me that you're born uh, with your brother in Scotland, and both of you guys probably decided, hey, we're going to get out of here. We're going to, for whatever reason, we're going to move to the United States. We're going to seek fortune, seek fame, seek what freedom, whatever the, whatever the deal was for them. They literally gathered together, sail across at peril of their lives, and all this stuff, landing in the United States. One of them goes to, uh, to New York and makes a living there. The other goes down south to Charlotte and makes a living there. And suddenly the world erupts around them into this civil war situation where the north is against the south. And both of the brothers joined the armies to, according to their states. And they found themselves at a, at a battle called, I believe it was called Sessionville. And, um, and at Sessionville, they're, well, they're, one of the brothers from the south is in a, in a very large kind of battlement area, just kind of up in this... Um, up in this protective zone where he's using the cannons. The other brother is the, is the color bearer. And he's going to take the flag out into the actual battle and, and support the, the union on that side. And so they're shoot, they always shot at the guy who's holding up the colors. And so he gets wounded and all this crazy stuff goes on. Later they're writing letters back and forth. And they wind up telling each other, I was at this battle. And they go, I was there too. And the end of the, con- the concord, the conversation winds up being basically, and you know what? I hope I never meet you again on the battlefield or I'll have to kill you because I'm never going to give up my, my right or my cause for my side in order, to, in order for you even as my brother. That's how deep this battle went. It had gotten so deep, it was dividing the families. The war was just causing people to be ruptured in half. And I find this is kind of strange because the battle we're having with God, the war that we've had with God has landed in my family. And signed in a very specific way. As I begin to examine my own heart and I begin to look at my life and I look at my children and I look at my past, there's these patterns that emerge. Maybe you understand what I'm talking about. But um, for me in particular, one of the weird things was I grew up on a street where all the boys were older than me and they kind of had a tendency to use me as their, as their punching bag. You know, it's kind of one of those things that happens. And um, as I've told you before, I wound up the only friend on my street was this was this blind kid across the street. And this sounds like, like a really pathetic story. And it's like this little blind kid across the street. It was not a friend. No, but in essence, it was kind of that reality of, of this rejection life that I lived. I just always felt rejected. I always felt put in place. I always felt this idea. And suddenly my boys and my daughter are off in school and meeting friends and talking to people. And we're hearing about how 
the kids won't play with them. And, uh, you know, these people aren't paying any attention. We're just like, oh, I'm like, oh, this is killing me here. They're being rejected. Where's the little blind kid for them to be friends with? And I'm just like, and it's just hurting me like crazy. And what I'm doing is I'm seeing the situation. Suddenly I'm, I'm kicking into gear. I'm like, no, this ain't going to happen. This is how you be cool. And this is how you do it. I'm trying to change What's happening to my kids, thinking that what's gone on in my past is going to affect them and it's going to be repeated. Well, I found out even a weirder thing was my mother had gone through a very similar set of circumstances when she was in, in junior high and high school, where she just constantly picked on all the people around her, didn't like her, and, and did this stuff. And so she had kind of built up this resistance to a certain way, and she then she parented me with that resistance. And so I wound up with the same thing and kind of dealing with life in the way that my mom dealt with life. And then I discovered all this, and I'm going, oh, I'm doing it to my kids. And I realized that's a trait I don't want to pass on. I don't want that to be a family thing that keeps going. I don't want that to keep happening. You ever said that about something in your family's life, something about your life, where you're saying, I don't want my kids to wind up like this or like that. I don't want them to end up with this addiction. I don't want them to end up with this just, you know, laziness. I don't want them to end up with this attitude. And some of you guys love your families. You're thinking, my family's perfect. Um, I don't want to change my family. My family was awesome. And your spouse is going, uh-uh. So just, uh, you know. It's kind of the reality of what we're dealing with. But when we see that the war with God has landed in our families, our most, many of us, many of us, our family past is something that many of us want to change. We want to adjust. We don't want it repeated in our lives, let alone our children's lives. We may look at the way our parents parented us, and we may suddenly have a certain hyper-reaction. They were very, you know, these kind of people who all the lines were straight and everything was good and perfect. And we go, hey, I'm not living in that. I'm going to have fun. And our family's going to be wild. And you're like all loosened up and you're crazy and way opposite. Maybe you grew up in the crazy home and you're like, that was just way too nuts for me. I like it. You got all your stuff in order and everything's lined up. And, and you're living in a complete reaction to how you grew up. Maybe you, you, you saw your family do this thing, so you never touch that thing. Maybe you saw your family eat this thing, you, don't, you hate that stuff. I don't want Chinese food, whatever. You have all these reactions we have to our past, to the way that we were raised, to what we pour into our own children and how we guide them and lead them forward. And some of you aren't old enough to have kids, but you wake up one day and you start thinking about your past. You start thinking about your family. And what you'll start doing is going, you know, I act like this because you did this. You ever said that? You start blaming your parents for the reasons and realities of what you're going through. And yes, it influenced you, but you still had the choice, right? And so this reality that there's a sense of a civil war happening in every home. There's a sense of not wanting to follow on everything that's going on with my family. There's a real sense that I want to I kind of react to what's going on. I want to protect my kids from having the experiences that I had. And so there's this, this kind of civil war, this, these traits we don't want moving for, forward, this past that we're constantly focused on looking at and looking at our, at our families and our lives and going, well, I don't want this repeated. It's really where the Bible goes to. It really goes to this idea of our family past, something we want to change. And it lands in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. And you want to go there, we're going to look at Romans chapter 5, verse 12, and we're going to go on through verse 17. And he's talking about families in this verse. Now, those of you who are just joining us, we're in the book of Romans, and if you want to grab a Bible and open it up there to page 942, you can join with us in the Bibles under the seats. And um, what we're finding out is that Paul has been a, an apostle who has spread the gospel all over the, all over the imperial Rome, Rome in the Roman Empire. And what happens is that he has come to spread the gospel to the point where he's ready to go to Rome itself. And he's written this letter saying, this is what I believe, this is what I preached, here it is. Now, he's explained that Jesus Christ, in his life and his death, 
took on the sins of humanity, bore them in his body, and then gave and rose from the dead and gave his, this gift from God to human beings to be forgiven of sins if they just simply trust the promise of God. So he's worked this out for, for all kinds of pages up to chapter 5, and we've just finished that. This isn't just forgiveness that Jesus has given us. This is literal reconciliation with God. You can have a relationship with him again, not just forgiveness. So that's where he's landed. And then he begins in a journey talking about family lineages. And it starts here in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who were sinning and not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. And you just kind of, you get to this point where you're like, what are you talking about, Paul? Calm down. Because he's just like all over the map. The the logic is like starting this way and then he changes gears. And we're just going to boil this down to a simple thing. He starts off with this. Look, guys, we are all in Adam's family and we all have Adam's flaw. We're all in Adam's family. And I don't mean the Adam's family. Right? I don't need these guys. These guys are odd. I mean, they got a lot of family flaws. They got a cousin who's all hair. That's just strange. They've got, they've got an uncle who can make light bulbs buzz with his mouth. I mean, we've got Brent Bradshaw, but that's nothing compared to Fester. And yeah, I'm just kidding. And the beauty of this family is that they own their weirdness. They own their oddity. They, they, it's just who they are. And we laugh at them. And it's a joke and it's different. But a different Adam's family, the true family of Adam, has a far more difficult flaw involved with them. And that flaw is that we were born into the, into the very family that's in rebellion against the God who created the universe. That's the flaw. And it comes to roost in our families, causing us to not, wanna, not want these traits, these things to come through in the future and, and to resist what we've done and what's gone on in our past. And all this stuff goes on. And it really is important that we begin here where Paul wants us to begin And so I'm going to read you guys from Genesis chapter 3, kind of what this family, where this family saga began. God had created the heavens and the earth, and he creates a man, he forms him, and he places him in a garden. He creates Eve, his wife, um, and places out of him and and puts her in the garden. Together they're there in in this paradise. Nothing's wrong, it's all great, and it goes on. Now... The serpent was more crafty than other, any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, right here at the beginning, we need to note that um, the Bible goes on to explain that this is Satan who's entered into the serpent to speak to Eve to, to deceive the woman. To call her to, action, to, to sin against God. And so this is Satan speaking through the serpent. And so it goes on. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we can eat of any, tr- any fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest we will die. But the serpent said to the woman, you won't surely die. He grabs on to this statement and begins to twist it. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God. You'll know good and evil. And he says, look, you don't get it. God's hiding something from you. God's God's not keeping you away from something that's going to hurt you. God's hiding something from you. he's, He's keeping you from a really good thing. And the woman goes, really? Huh? Okay. Leans in. And suddenly we read this. So when the woman saw that the tree was 
good for food. That's pretty pragmatic. That it was delight to the eyes. That's pretty artistic. And the tree was to be desired to make one wise. It's pretty intellectual. She took of its fruit and ate. She'd examined it from every perspective. Every way she could look at it, she was like, yeah, 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 yeah. So she ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her. I mean, you always see this picture. It's like you stand there and the servant's right there. And it's like, where's Adam? He's over there, you know, fishing or doing something, naming animals, doing, you know. And here is, the, literally, you stand there. No, Adam's right behind her going, I didn't know serpents could talk. <laughs> I don't know what he's saying. Is he just like blown away, right? It's like, wow, I've been here at this long and I just didn't know this happened. There was a woman's having this conversation. No, he's listening. He's probably leaning in going, huh, I didn't know that about God. Oh, interesting. Yeah, you go right ahead and eat. No, that's not what he's, he's supposed to push the woman out of the way, walk up to the serpent, just goes, hack, and off it goes. They leave us alone. We're not going to touch that tree. He doesn't do that. He doesn't defend. He, his sister goes, hmm, 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 hmm. Oh, she ate. Oh, what am I going to do now? You know, when the wife's happy, the whole world is happy. Might as well eat. You know, that's what I think. Something like that was going on. Because he capitulated. He wasn't deceived. He did it on purpose. Adam is culpable for the sin of the world. He is the, he is the head of the family. And so it says this. Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked. I think it went a, bit, a little bit like this. She, huh. Ah! Ah! Whoa, whoa, whoa! And off they went hiding. Because something suddenly sparked in their minds that, oh, I'm not comfortable standing here like this. In front of you, you in front of me, or in front of the narrator of the Bible who's writing this out. And it says, their eyes were opened, they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. They literally were so freaked out by the reality that they were naked because they felt like there was something shameful now about them. This will go on to reveal the war with God. When God shows up, the first thing they do is they hide. They're like, I don't want to be near God. I don't want to. And when God pulls them out and starts asking them questions, the next thing they do is they start blaming God, you gave me that woman, so I ate. And the woman goes, well, uh, the, the serpent did this. To, and so it's a shift, 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 shift of blame. And the entire fabric of social reality is unraveled because of sin. And the first thing that was broken was the relationship between the man and the woman, realizing they were naked, realizing I want to hide from you. When we come to that reality, that's a family problem. The war with God, the disobedience with God, the telling God, you know, I'm not really into what you're into, leads us to this place where we don't have right relationships with each other, let alone with our families. And so it began to kind of dissolve. And so that's what, Adam, that's what Paul is getting to in here in verse 12 again. Look at it. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, we just read about that, and death through sin, because they would all die because of this sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And what's important to note here is the word sin. 
it's a, it's, it's a confusing word. We got a lot of people telling us what sin is that maybe not be in the church. They're outside the church going, I know what sin is. And we had a, I just had a conversation with somebody in my life the other day. Their, their brother was trying to tell him, yeah, I don't get it. You guys can be all against this particular sin over here, but then you can watch football on Sunday. And she was like, What? Since when watching NFL on Sunday become a sin, apparently it was supposed to be a sin. It was supposed to be something we should know is a sin. And so they were telling us that we should know that, and I've heard all kinds of things that are supposed to be sin for us, and all kinds of stuff that we've said is sin. We don't drink, we don't chew, and we don't go with girls who do. You know, that whole, that whole thing that's out there in this world of kind of these things we create around us that are, that's sin, that's not sin. And, and this whole reality of, of what we say is sin has gotten confused. So let's just clarify sin real quick. The word sin literally is an archery term. It means to miss the target, to miss the mark. So you can imagine on the far side here, it'd be a dartboard. I was going to do this, but then I thought about if I really missed, you guys would get hurt. And, uh, and you have a dart, and, and the way you ought to explain it is you take this dart, and God's call for you is to hit the dartboard every single time. The problem is, Adam was the first one who got the darts, and he went there, and the servant says, you know, you don't have to hit the dartboard. Really? And from that point on, when we get the darts, the tails are taken off. Because it's all messed up. And so we take these darts, and we try to throw them, and we miss every time this thing goes, right on the ground. And here's what we do. We go, oh, that wasn't very good. And we take paint, and we go, and we draw this little target, and we go, I hit it. I hit a bullseye. We just, we just make our own mark on the ground. We say, see, I did it. And God goes, uh-uh. I don't care how many targets you draw, because there are a lot all over the ground. There's only one that we were all supposed to hit. And we missed, and we missed, and we missed the mark. What's this mark? Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God is the mark. You go, well, that doesn't help. What does that mean? That's why Jesus is a great teacher. He summed it up very simply. He said, listen, here's what it means. You need to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the summation of all of the law and the prophets, of all of that, everything God's told us to do right here. That's summed up in those two terms. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, how many of us have really done that in the church or even if you're not a Christian? I have never met someone who literally with every essence of their being, every bit of their strength, everything of every synapse of their thought gone, I am going to give my all to God every single day. And not just any God, the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not the God of Greg. I'm going to give my all to him and everything. He's, ah, I don't know anybody who does that. I know for me and most people I know, it's like, I'm going to give my all to God and this is awesome. I'm tired. I'm going to bed. Oh, it's church is over. I'm going to put that side there and go to work. We're, we're, we're real good at compartmentalizing our religion. It's, it's a very private thing. I don't really want to talk about it. But that's, that's how we love God and then we're supposed to love others as ourselves. And most people go like, yeah, I love that part. You know, I need to love other people. I need to care for them. I need to share with them. I need to talk to them, help them out. I need to love other people. And you go, but as yourself. I mean, you know how much you think about yourself. You know how much you pay attention to you, especially when you consider there are people sitting behind you staring at the back of your head. <laughs> and they're doing it right now. Is that straight? No, this is a... We're very self-conscious. We're very self-caring. We're very self-focused. 
And God says, just as focused as you are in caring about yourself and caring about your own life, you should care about everybody else around you. I don't know about you, I've failed miserably at that as well. Fall short of that all the time. Fall short of it almost so routinely, it, it, it's, it's not funny. But that's sin. And I realize the objection is simply this. Some of you are saying, well, I'm not a Christian. I don't have to follow those two rules. I don't have to love God and love my heart. I don't even believe in that God. And caring about people, yeah, I get that. But, you know, there are times where you don't need to have to do that. You need to care about number one before you care about number two. You know, I get all that. And so you're going, how can you say that I've sinned if, if I'm not involved in this belief system of yours? I said, well, that, that is a great question. And the only response I have is kind of what Paul says here in verse 13. He says, look, for sin indeed was in the world before the law, these these two rules I just gave you, was given. But sin's not counted where there is no law. It's not going to be held against us where there's no law. And he says, yet, hold on, before you make a conclusion, death ruled, it reigned, from Adam, the first guy who sinned, to Moses, the guy who gave us the laws. Even over those who sinning wasn't like what, how Adam did it, where God said, don't do this, and we did it anyway. And he's saying, there was another law at work. Sure, we know that sin occurred because people continued to die. Death ruled. But what law was it? What law occurred? What was going on? Let me put it this way. All of us have at this point, and, and, and I, I really, everybody I've talked to agrees with this, there is some point in your, in your life where you come to this thing and you say, I know it's not good to lie. I know it's not right. I know it's not right to do, and you name X, Y, or Z. And then you find yourself doing this. I know I shouldn't do this. Yeah, I know I shouldn't do this. I, you, people should not do this. But it's, and you just keep going towards it. And eventually you do it. Anybody been there? Everybody's been there. Everybody has said to themselves, this is wrong for me. And yet we still break it. It doesn't matter if you need God's law. Your own conscience has been broken and God views that as sin. You can go against your own moral code. You can go against your own personal knowledge of right and wrong. And when you do that, you sinned. And it's not something to be like, oh, you're an evil preacher. You call me a sinner. No, I'm just saying you're part of Adam's family and we all have Adam's flaw. Welcome to the family. You rang. Yes. You know, you got all this horrible reality of Adam's family that is ours. It's, it's miserable. But it's true. And it's hard to swallow. But it's a reality. And so we all die. We all have this sin. And you can see it clearly in, in Romans 2, 14. He puts it this way. Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires. There are a lot of themselves even though they do not have the law. When we break our own personal law, we're a law to ourselves, and when we break it, it's sin. Now, this is important to note because this isn't something that should be shocking to us. Look at this again. Look at verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because who? All what? Who sinned? Now, now, if you don't have a Bible out, you, you grab a stranger's Bible next to you and, and look at it really closely because I need you to say it out loud. Death spread to all men because all sinned. All. How many? All. Is that leaving anybody out? All? Everybody? Every single human being? Every human on the earth? All have sinned. 
I don't think us parents believe that. Can I just be honest? I think we see all these family traits. I think we see these traits which are actually sin. And they're coming into our lives and we go, oh, they're in my life. And then we look at our children and we go, no, 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 no. I can't let my kids sin. I can't let this kids sin. No, 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 no. Can I? No, don't even ask. Stay padded in this room, you know. Literally, it's gotten to the place in our culture, they call it helicopter parenting. You guys heard of this? Helicopter parenting is the idea of the parents hovering over the children. (laughs) Don't do that. Yes, go to that college. Here, have my medical plan till you're 27. You know, that kind of helicopter parenting. And that's what's going on is that parents watch and they monitor and they monitor and they hover and they hover and they hover to the point when I was a kid, I used to go on this thing called the, the, the merry-go-round. Anybody remember the merry-go-rounds? Metal merry-go-rounds? You'd hold on for dear life going, and somebody's spinning, your friend's over there spinning, running as fast as he can. He's trying to get you to throw up. That's the goal of the merry-go-round. And you get off and you're like, oh, I'm busy. And you make sure you're wearing jeans because you're going to go get up on the metal slide. You get on that thing, you're like, hot, 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 hot. Oh, that's fine. Let's do it again. You know, that's how kids work. And you find yourself over on the monkey bars, climbing around, you knock a friend off, he breaks his arm, you're like, I win. The other parents, today, now you walk around, you're like, padded ground and odd plastic things that don't get hot. And kids showing up and looking like they were in the middle, like they were the brother from the Christmas story, all padded up and ready to go. I mean, we're, we're like, don't hurt, don't, no, 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 bubble wrap. You know, that's the reality of helicopter parenting where we have more rules telling us how to protect our children than we have about what right and wrong is. And the sad thing is it slipped into the church in a morality way. Where I'm starting to see parents saying, oh, I'm not going to let my kid do that. I'm not going to keep my kid from this. Keep my kid, keep, 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 keep. And they keep them in what's called a Christian enclave or bubble. So much so that the child has no interaction with the world around him. And what happens is when they finally engage that world, what we're discovering is well over 90% of our youth that are going and growing up in churches and in children's ministries are looking at the church going, well, that's lame because this is a lot more fun. I've been held back from all the fun in the world. And they're walking away in droves. And the reason why is because we've trained our children that there's this big, bad, scary world out there and it's going to take your Jesus. He's going to take it right away from you and you can't have him back. And I mean to be really silly about this because last time I checked, Jesus shows up and the world trembles. And if that's the spirit of the Lord God within us, and the kid walks into the world with the Lord God in his heart, it's the college that better watch out because he's about to give them an education. That's the difference between fear-based parenting and preparation-based parenting. I'm not saying don't be discerning. Don't hear me. I'm not sitting there going, hey, kid, watch this rated R movie. <laughs> That's not what I'm talking about. Okay. I'm talking about training your children so they're ready to engage a world and a culture that if they're not ready, are ready to train them. That's why they fall prey, because they've not been trained. You're saying, well, church, you're not doing your job. No, it's the parents first, the church supplements. We're the vitamins. 
And what we need to be able to do is show them that Jesus Christ is bold, Jesus Christ is able, that this world has death available, this world is stuck in Adam, but also it's, and, and all, it's just, sorry, I'm getting a little off track, but I want to pull it in for a second. We can get ourselves so freaked out because what we see in the past is all this sin in our families. We see in our present is all our own personal sins. And then we look at our children and we think, I don't want my kids to make the mistakes I made. That's what causes moral helicopter parenting or as the Bible would call it, Phariseeism. And what happens is we parent from fear of the past and we parent from the fear of sin and we parent from these things over here and we don't realize that Jesus has dealt with that. And he's come into our lives to give us a new thing to parent towards. We'll talk about that in a second. But when we start parenting, we parent out of fear. But guess what? Let's read this again. And death spread to all men because all sinned. You have a child, you open a grave. Every child will die because every child will sin. They may not make your mistakes. They're going to make all their own. And they're going to grow up thinking, I'm going to keep my kids from making the mistakes I made. Their kids are going to make their mistakes because all sin and fall short of the glory of God. I'm saying this so we can swallow the pill. Not to be fearful, but to be discerning. Train your children rightly. Give them the right opportunities to make the moral decisions when they need to. Now what we do is we stand here and we dance and we point and we poke and we sing and we shout and we serve and we do everything we can going, Jesus will save you, Jesus will save you. I mean, as great as my wife is, and she's awesome, and I'm okay, and together we're a powerful duo that Wonder Twins, when we activate, we still can't save our kids. Because there's only one name by which children are saved, and that is the name of Jesus Christ. Not Greg, not Teresa, not Brian Dunn, not Stephanie Baumgartner. Jesus Christ. And we get to that place where we start fearing our pasts and fearing our families and fearing the sin and fearing what's falling on us because we're in Adam's family. By changing families. God doesn't want that stuff around on us. He doesn't want that stuff in our lives. That's why he's not going to let it in heaven. Instead, what he wants to do is, is he's waiting for that day. And instead, he's offered up Jesus Christ to bear and take that sin away. And then give us a new chance to be in a new family called Jesus' family. The family of Christ being in Adam or in Christ. And when we're in Christ now... He begins to work that out and change us and transform us. Notice how this works out. We have this new family and see we have pe- the past has peace and the future becomes our focus. Look at verse 15. But the free gift, speaking about Jesus on the cross, is not like the trespass. For if many died through the man, one man's trespass, if Adam's trespass, much more has the grace of God and the free gift by that grace and the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. So you have this opportunity. You can stay in Adam's family over here and suffer with the death and suffer with the condemnation and suffer with all the junk and start to fight it and try to figure out how you can create perfection, which still doesn't help because Adam was in perfection when he sinned. Or you can come over to Christ's side where he gives you a renewed, transformed family and your past is dealt with, finalized, forgiven, and done. Yes, there's traits in these things, but he's transforming you now to the future, to this new family. And this new family has some different aspects to it. Look at verse 16. 
The free gift, speaking about Christ on the cross, is not like the result of one man's sin. For the judgment followed the trespass, brought condemnation. So it brought this guilty verdict. This team, guilty. But the free gift, following many trespasses, brought justification, a not guilty verdict. God made it right. So we're right with God. In fact, we don't see God as the fighter. We see him as our father. We suddenly have a relationship. We're reconciled. We can talk with him. We can know him. We can be used by him. We can enjoy him. And you don't go running around a bunch of new rules. Rules are about back here managing sin. What you have is a relationship. And so you don't get in the Bible because you have to. You get in the Bible because you get to know God in it. You don't go praying because you have to. You pray because you want to talk to the Father. You want to talk to the one who saved you. You want to talk to the one who's brought you out of sin into life. You don't go serve people well because it's your Christian duty. You serve them because God's living in you and calling you to go help other people and love them as you love yourself. And you tell people about life, not because you have to as a Christian. No, because why wouldn't you? When people could get to live in the way that you feel and the way that you experience God, why wouldn't you give it away? And when we connect with each other and do life together, it's a radically different reason. It's not sitting around, it's, which is how I, I guess that's how Adam's family talks. But the, it's, it's the idea of being able to talk about the joys and the beauties and the wonders of what he's doing and how he's overcoming things in our lives and the future and where we're headed. The past is dealt with. Now the future is our focus. The past has been forgiven and finalized. You have a new future. This really comes out of verse 17. Look at it closely. For if because of one man's trespass, back here, death reigned through that one man, what's ruling in Adam's family? Death. Much more will those who receive the abundance of the grace, the free gift of righteousness, reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Reign in life. What is this? took me a while to look this up and figure this out. While reigning in death, over here, it doesn't matter what you do and how good you do things and do all this stuff, it doesn't work out. Because death ends it. All your good works, nothing. Death took it. When you reign in life, you're not living fighting sin. You're not living fearing your failures. Yes, you're going to mess up. Yes, you're going to fall. Yes, you're going to sin. The Father has given you the Son to handle that. He picks you up. Yes, he'll discipline you. He'll get you moving. But you get transformed as you go. You're not just managing. You're transforming forward toward eternity where every good work you do continues forward. Why should you know what your calling is? Why should you know what God's called you to do and do it? Why should you have the passion that God has for your life? Because You're not living under death. You're living in life. And that passion doesn't have to end. That passion focuses for the good. That passion transforms and brings eternal dividends. When you live in Christ and you reign in life, it becomes this scenario where there is no sacred and there is no secular. All is worship except when you sin. If you're a construction worker, you can do it as worship. And you do it for the aid of others. You're a mother, you're a father, you can do it for the, for the love of God and the processing of others. You can, be a, you can be an artist, you can be all these things. It changes all the way that we think about things. I love to, I love to think about what my kids can be 
so that my children become those who are entering into the arts, prepped to bring Christ there because they're living in life, because Christ has transformed them. They step into the world of engineering to create or design or to do their job as well as they can using the sciences and stuff because they know who created these sciences. And they're able to spread it in their soccer teams. They're able to spread it in their baseball teams. They're able to talk about it with knowledge because God has changed them. And they get to experience life. The church is supposed to be about life. But if you're living in a no, 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 no world, you're not living in what is, what is life in Christ. You're living in a Pharisee land. You're living in a world of laws and rules, not in a relationship with the living God. And so when we walk into this relationship with living God, we sure, we tell our children no here and there where they need to be, where there's no's. They're not ready for certain things. But when they get old enough, we've trained them. We say, make a decision. And God can use you over there. Make a decision and God can use you over there. Make a decision and God, and we start helping them see how what Christ is doing in their life is about a future forward momentum about what he's doing in your life is not about what you can and can't do. You don't have no when you know what God's called you to do. You just go for it. You'll say no yourself. You'll make decisions about what's no because it's outside of your purpose. It's outside of what God's called you to do. That's living in life. That's walking with Christ. Now, I don't want any of us getting caught up in living in the past in living in fear of our sins, and living in fear of all these things. It reminds me of a, of a soldier named Hiro Onodo. Hiro Onoda was a, was a man who was um, given orders to never, ever, ever give up, under no circumstances, surrender or take his own life. He was part of the Japanese army of World War II. Landed on a little Philippine island. Was one of three guys who survives. Fought the war of World War II until 1972. They dropped tracks to him, telling him, telling him, hey, dude, the war's over. And they're like, this is propaganda. And they threw it away. Kept coming down the mountains and firing at people and doing stuff. It took, them, took Japan to, to find his actual commander, give him back his rank and everything, send him to this guy and tell him, we've surrendered. Give me your gun. You're released of your duty before he would actually stop. He lived his entire life fighting a war that was over. He missed out on all of the technological revolutions and all the change in Tokyo. All the things he could have done. And instead, when he got back, all he could do was lament how Tokyo had changed so much so that he wished he wasn't there and he moved to Brazil. Only to return to set up a little tiny station for children to remember what their past was. And this poor guy, Hiro, was living in the past and never left it. And because he was constantly fighting his war of the past, He missed out on what he could have been for the future. Jesus has finalized our past. We're forgiven. We've been removed out of Adam. We're in Christ. He has something for you to do, and you can do it. He's calling you to something, and so we see this challenge today. Are you willing to stop living with thoughts to the past and live for the future given to you in Jesus? Willing to stop those thoughts to the past what you're fighting there and start going, you know what, we're at peace there. I'm going to start living for the future. What step would you take today? Maybe it's jump into discipleship. Maybe it's to walk forward into, um, into a small group or something like that.
God, you know where God's called you to the next step. And hopefully you're excited about it and you'll take that step forward. But what is that? Because you don't have to live fighting that past any longer. Let's, let's bow our heads. You know, this morning, you may have come in here ready to um, wrestle down your, your own emotions or wrestle down your own sins and think that you're here and I don't want to hear this stuff or I don't know where you're at. But maybe you came in blaming your past on your parents or blaming your past on things that happened to you, but now you're ready to see that, you know what, you're, you've made the decisions yourself. Yeah, those past things have affected you, but God wants to deal with that past and he wants to deal with you. God wants to be able to forgive you. He wants to end this war that you may be having with him where you want to run your own life, where you want to do it your way. You're you're ready to admit that you sinned. You're ready to admit that you've messed up and you've done some things. Maybe you're done fighting that past. Maybe you're done fighting with all those things and you're ready for him to come into your life and help you walk forward to see a new future, a new direction, a new hope for life. What he's given you is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is important because he comes in and he takes our sins from us and he bears them on the cross. And he, he bears the punishment so that you can be forgiven and be reconciled with God so you can have a relationship with him. And then he rises from the dead to give us a new chance on life so the Father can dwell with us by his spirit. And you can know God and walk with him all the way into heaven and eternity. If there's one thing that you do this this afternoon, maybe it's that you receive that gift. It's a free gift that God gives out. You don't go and change a bunch of stuff and receive it. You just receive the gift. And that, that gift is given to you this morning. He says, here, I want to forgive you. I want to be reconciled with you. Are you willing to surrender and accept my gift? If you're willing to surrender and accept God's gift this morning, and maybe it's been a long time since you have, or it's the first time, and you're saying, yeah, I need that peace with God. I want to give you an opportunity to receive that just by putting your hand up. You're saying, yes, right now, I'd love to receive that gift. Amen. that's you and you've got your hand up just this prayer doesn't save it just allows you to talk to God you just say God in heaven I know that I've sinned and I want to receive your gift of Jesus Christ I trust that he took my sins I trust that you've forgiven me and I trust that you're willing to give me a relationship with you through him Would you come into my life? Would you lead me from here? I'm ready to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.